are tuned in to Marifa Podcast with your operator, commander of the airways. Call me your TV and film doctor because I give you a prescription, Dr. Natumi. Here to echo the words of Comrade Bobo Demidemi, tough times never last, only tough people last. Better yet, behind every successful woman, there is a story to tell. And we start with that of Gina Prince, by the word, whose debut feature classic, Love and Basketball, celebrated 20 years since its release in 2000, this April of 2020. Gina has been responsible for directing films such as Secret Life of Bees, Beyond the Lights, and the soon-to-be-released Netflix feature, The Old God. It's been wonderful watching her career. And as a writer-director myself, I'm interested to continuously see what she brings to the table. But it's nice to look back at where she started. Love and Basketball was produced by 40 Acres and Emil Films. Music by Terence Blanchard. And we're talking about a time that soundtracks were really closely attached to films and did amazingly well on the chart. The likes of Waiting to Excel, Love and Basketball itself... Love Jones, just at the top of my head. And the film went on to gross $27 million. Hmm. We thank God. We thank God. And going down in history as one of the most important black cinematic classic of a golden age. We salute you and the many more that you've inspired over the years. Me being one of them. For anybody who doesn't know Love and Basketball, it's an American romantic drama featuring Sanaa Lathan and Omar Epps. The film tells the story of Quincy McCall, played by Epps, and Monica Wright, played by Lathan, two next-door neighbours living in Los Angeles, California, who were pursuing their basketball careers before eventually falling for each other. I think I distinctively remember watching this film and the thing that really stuck out for me as well is a coming of age story so you get a chunk of the story when they were younger and we get to see how they are as young kids growing up next to each other and the fact that they're really motivated by this quest of being able to play professionally and them actually really maneuvering that through their their teen years up to the point that they've made it and are living out their their ideals in their career and then with them going on and having kids it's been a number of years since I've actually re-watched the film but it was absolutely amazing in the month of April just seeing that surge of of images just really goes to show the importance of having images really reflect society in the stories of of people who look like you. It was a really pivotal time when this film came out. We're talking about throughout the 90s having films like Boys in the Hood, Baby Boy, Poetics Justice, Brown Sugar now in the early 2000s and Love and Basketball. And it's it's been a joy to be able to look at it. At the same time, very humbling to know that we're only we're getting older. I am getting older. <laughs> Love and basketball is a is a good twenty years old. And someone who was born the same year this film was released, and that person has grown. So we know, clearly this film has grown. Gina has gone on to continue producing features, but this is a beautiful classic, and I think I would. If I if ever had the opportunity to sit down and, and talk with her, I would want to just know how that moment feels. It's one thing to make something that resonates and, and, and makes money in the box office. It's another thing to make something so golden in this sense, something that it's so cherished and it's so pivotal in, in our memory of looking back at cinema and in the places that it's inspired us. On top of that, the soundtrack was absolutely 
life-changing. Michelle Ndegeocello, who has a beautiful, beautiful voice, but her contribution to this is just golden absolutely golden. So we salute and we once again give homage to the creator, the writer, the director of this wonderful classic, cinematic classic, Love and Basketball. If you're looking for a film to watch during this time, I definitely recommend Love and Basketball. Just great, good, nostalgic feeling of the early 2000s when I was young and and, and free. Ah, good times good times. So we move on to Insecure episode two review and we are low-key distant. This is three months before the block party. In the episode, Condola and Issa's relationship grows as Molly probes Andrew, hashtag Asian Bay, to open up. Come on, come on. So we start the show with Molly and Andrew, hashtag Asian Bay, coming out from a dinner date. Molly feels that she's opened up to him a lot, while he, on the other hand, has not. So she plans a dinner and chill without the chill. And during the dinner, she probes him a little bit when they're at her house. It seems that it's evident in his body language that he's finding it difficult to be able to open up to her. It reveals to us that there's a little bit more of a weight when it comes to his background story and what's going on. So I'm interested to see how that's going to unpack, unfold in the episodes to come, if it will. He lives in a little bit of a haze due to the probing that Molly is doing. But what I really actually did like is the fact that Andrew later calls and apologises to Molly. And I was like, oh, so cute. What a mature relationship. This is what you want in life. You know, this is what you're looking, this is all we're looking for. Just a little bit of understanding. Mm, Come on. Condola and Issa, on the other hand, they're growing close. They're working hard, planning the block party. And the scene that Molly comes into the restaurant when she's thinking that she's just going to be meeting Issa and Issa has told Condola to stick around. I hate things like that. You know, when you have to be friends with your friend's friend and you're just like, bruv, I can just about stand you. Why is it that I have to now sit with your extra now new friends? No new friends. Drake knew. He knew. Meanwhile, we're here ignoring him. I was all the way with Molly with that one. I was just like, really? Really? Mm Mm-mm. So there's a scene with the guys and this is the first time that we're seeing the guys in a bit of a a fuller body. So Lawrence is with his friends and they're talking and he's dealing with this whole idea of the fact that Condola is working with Issa and how is it that he's going to work around that? Also the fact that they were exes. So is Issa going to be telling some information about how he was at a certain time? So he's not really feeling too comfortable with that. He talks with the boys. He lets it off his chest how he's going to approach the situation. So he meets with Issa so he can kindly ask her not to not to be talking about him to Condola. And he later, this is the key part, he later texts Issa to tell her not to tell Condola that they had the meeting. And I was like, oh, are you having secrets now? You're having secrets in your new bay? It's too early, Lawrence. It's too early. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. In this moment, in this particular moment, I had a glimmer of hope that Lawrence and Issa will get back together. I still do hold out hope. I'm not going to lie. I am that person. I think so far, anyway, the the story hasn't given us too much of a better option of who Issa could possibly move on to. So for that reason and that reason alone, I'm like, can they get back together? Should they get back together? Should they get back together? 
personally, I'm rooting for this relationship. But if it was me in real life, I wouldn't. (laughs) My friend, I would be like, create a dating app, go out, date, do other stuff, find another man. Okay. But it's different because Issa is the one who did him wrong. She will forever have to live with that. Issa breaks up with TSA Bay. You know, she's been getting, she's been getting it good getting it real real good but he is expecting a third child so what is Issa gonna turn around and just be chilling there to what be the fifth baby mama with a fourth child Mm-mm. no Mm-mm. more than anything this episode shows that there's a clear drift forming between Issa and Molly they're becoming more and more distant even when they do meet up and they have their Sunday self-care there's tension just brewing and I feel the main thing is they have not taken time to have a conversation and just and let go of the tiffs that form when clearly you're having different ideas or you're, you're seeing your friend in a different way, you're growing in different directions. But when you're living in that moment anyway, you don't always tend to have like the, the retrospective clarity that, that comes with them. Key things that stood out for me this episode is the cinematography stands out really well in this season. It's clean cut. Not sure if we've gone back to the cinematographer in season one, but we love it. Beautifully lit and framing, especially with soul characters, appearing at the bottom half of the screen is so well executed. I love the scenes outside. I think scenes outside are really nice. But one thing I've actually always did like about Insecure and mostly with the first and second season is the indoor scenes that they did have and how well lit they were. So it's also quite nice to be able to see LA, this LA, the experience of Los Angeles for these characters and how that backdrop looks like. We don't always tend to see that in in programming. So the fact that we're having a block party, the fact that we're seeing these characters outside kind of like just scouting the areas is amazing. Another thing as well is the styling in the show is really well done. I think I'm enjoying being able to see Condola, who has very kind of like similar quirkiness in her style as Issa, but it's still very, it's very different. It's rich. It's bougie. Yes. And I love it. Ooh, sassy. I'm a savage. Okay. Another thing as well is the great foil characters, mostly with the guys. Chad, played by Neil Brown Jr., does such a fantastic job. It's so different from anything else that I've seen him in. He has so many standout lines throughout the season. So I remember, actually, true fans, there's one one episode that Issa goes to see Lawrence, and this is when he's moved out. This is a TBT. And her hair has grown, and he's like, girl, you using that mane and tail? I was like, boy, you better stop. Stop it. Stop it. I love him. He is, mm, he is him. Another thing as well is like, this is the joy of having great actors play characters because he does it so well. I know whoever's writing for him just has to punch it up a different level because you just want, you want to, you just want to give him the best of what you can as a writer. And I really enjoy watching him on screen. Another character as well is Kelly. I love the fact that in this season, we're seeing way more of her. Kelly's played by Natasha Rothwell. She's a friend that we all want to have. And I feel like if within the group, I am not her, I want to be able to make sure that I have a friend like her in the group. This episode, she was in a Baps outfit. Jesus, even her trying to sit down. Oh, oh, I love her love her love her insecure episode two review loki distant let's see how it develops let me know what you think about episode two how you're enjoying the season thus far 
we move on to the next show and that's netflix produced black af black as fuck hashtag black af is a netflix teen show that was released on the 17th of april it's created by kenya barris who's also the creator of blackish grownish and mixed ish so i watched all eight episodes of black af i feel that with everything that was going around this show before its release i was like i want to be able to give it a full chance that as well as the fact that you know we're in lockdown i was just like okay cool i can do all eight episodes in this it's not gonna be that tasking and that jarring it had its moments it really did have its moments there's a lot of weight and baggage that i checked just so that i can be able to have as much of a clear mind when i'm watching this show so i want to start off with the good what i liked about the show so i really enjoyed the mockumentary style comparable to shows like curb your enthusiasm and the office the dry humor i feel that worked really well i also feel like overall the show works without having any previous knowledge of blackish in reality this is just another reimagination of how blackish would have been it's the same setup of kinabaris's family and what's going on and how he's surviving in this world um his world and being able to get an insight to that in another in another way I did like the narrator element of the show. Once again, with that previous knowledge of the show Blackish, Iman Benson, who plays Drea Barris, is the one who anchors the show. And I felt that she did a really good job of being able to do that. And it gives us a different perspective of this world that we're welcomed into. What I did like is the self-analysis, the self-criticism that rang throughout the show. It's straight there from the beginning with um, with Kenya Barris and this gold chain, if she should have it, how he's behaving in comparison to other successful white creators and how he feels he needs to behave. I mean, that insightfulness in regards to a character, I liked. What I will go further into is just the fact that it doesn't hold up. I feel as someone who's a Libra in me, I want to be able to have solutions to these problems. So if you're giving me problems at the end, I'm like, fix them, please, please. So it was very testing for me. There's a point that Kenya Barris goes with his daughter to meet with Tyler Perry. And Tyler Perry gives us a very rehearsed speech on his process and what he does and how his creative process is and a lot of the backlash that he has had in, in the films that he's done and the programming that he's done. In that way, it works well to be able to motivate Kenya Barris at that point as an, as an artist, as someone who's struggling. But then overall, it's very shut off to people bringing forth this and I know you know I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit but the reality of it it's really difficult to be able to have a balance when people are actually putting out certain suggestions and and concerns because these are more concerns than anything when it comes to the way that they're represented or part of their community is represented there's no desire to take on those points it's just rebutting them and rebutting them constantly but that's another issue for another time today we're dealing with with kenya and um and hashtag black af they're not so good the downside of this show points that were very evident and in our face is the colorism element due to the few shows that we have of black families you know seeing less and less of ourselves reflected on screen it becomes unbearable you know it's very redundant we're getting the same shaping the same hues more so due to the fact that it's a repetitive narrative i feel for many people if 
a creator came along and it was someone else. If it was someone else who did Black AF, there would be less of an issue when it comes to the colorism element of it. With Kenya Barris, it's the same narrative, number one, that we're getting with Blackish. And there's more so of an effort to erase Blackness in, in casting. And it's very evident. And I feel the only person being realistic who can answer these questions, if he wants to, is Kenya Barris. And I think in the space that we're in with Twitter and, um, and public opinion being so open to us as the audience that's consuming this it's telling though because of the fact that there's other shows that he's done and the shows that he has done have less and less of people who look like Kenya Barris and it's it's a little bit of a okay so what is going on what is really happening what are you are you saying and being realistic so much of what and how we tell stories says so much about ourselves and how we see ourselves in society. The core of this and what is frustrating, and I completely understand the plight of so many people who voice their concern about this show and colorism, is this is how Kenya Barris sees his world. From mixed-ish to grown-ish to black-ish, this is how he sees his world. And the reality of that, there's a danger to that one-sided narrative. And it's not to take away from the fact that we, we need to be able to have images of mixed families, but not at the expense of us taking away Black families in such a, a heavy, heavy, heavy way. Another thing with Black AF is the repetitive topic. Most of what comes about in this show has already been covered in Blackish. The majority white writers writing on a Black experience, Jesus Christ, Black Jesus, as you are watching down on us. This is something that was, this is something that's even comical. It's it's hilarious. It's actually quite funny. I don't know why this would be something that works. I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get that. I don't understand why this is something that, oh, okay, cool. Black AF or how it was previously named Black Excellence. Like a majority white writers are who are going to write about these experiences. That means that at the end of it, I'm not your target audience. Black people are not your target audience because there's nothing that you're offering us in telling us this is how a white person sees the black experience or being black AF. And I really do feel hence the reason why a lot of it, it missed the mark. It missed the mark because of the fact that a lot of the writers there are white. I'm just like, I who comes up with these things and why do they do it? Like who brings about this and is like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's, let's, let's put it this way. Let's try and and do it in this certain way it make make it make sense make it make sense jesus christ of nazareth (sighs) so overall we have a major issue of representation from the writer's room all the way through to on screen on top of it being a whole complete repeated you know synopsis of what blackish is the fact that it's the same narrative repeated in Blackish with Kenya Barris just playing himself and with more kids. <clears throat> Why? Why? <laughs> On one side, I'm looking at this and I'm like, you know what, yeah, he's taken the deal and part of his deal, he's presented something that's very similar to what he's done before. I don't know whether it's Netflix who don't have any idea of what he's worked on before 
or they actually really just don't care. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Only Netflix will be able to answer for that. But part of me is like, I'm not mad at him. Make your money, do what you need to do. The other side of me as well is very pissed off. I'm just like, why would you do this? Why would you do this to yourself? Why would you do this to us? Like, why? All I have is questions more than answers. I absolutely hated the episode with his family. It was horrific. The representation of them being hood less than. And the reason for his family being invited for the barbecue is so that the young son can be able to dance because he's not being able to dance because the quarter white heritage that he has is is making his rhythm not tap. I'm just like, really? Really? I can't deal with it. The show is problematic in a time and atmosphere where different shades of blackness are not ever seen. Whether you have mixed heritage or not, there's so many different hues of blackness. You cannot look at blackness and say, this is just, this is just it. So we do have a duty in having a better representation overall of who we are. We don't want to have one over another. Looking back into the 90s to the early 2000s and a lot of the shows that we did have, a lot, a lot of comedy shows that we did have from the likes of Moesha all the way to, to Girlfriends, we had more of a balance, a representation of being able to see women of different colours with ambition, with a drive, doing things and, and really being seen. My biggest desire is to be able to have a balance. The conversation on colorism is not there to say that blackish or mixedish does not have a place what we're asking more than anything is like in creating so many shows that showcase one way we need to be able to start bringing in a balance of other stories and seeing different people in these spaces overall. Thinking comparatively though, when it comes to Black British TV, being able to see programming that's close to and serves the demographic of what Black AF is striving to be able to serve, this would not be a bad show. It would not be a bad show. It's more so a a reflection of how Black British society in general looks. But I can fully understand and hear the plight of Black Americans who are like, what are you talking about, Kenya Barris? Why is this your comfort space and the constant merry-go-round of how you see the world? But more than anything, this speaks to the need of having multiple people telling stories because ultimately you write what you know. And at this rate, Kenya Barris only knows his family. Having multiple shows around the experience of your family, it's just, it gets a bit jarring. It gets a bit jarring, mostly when we're in a space that there's nothing else on screen that showcases the black family experience. That's where the problem comes into. If there was other shows that were offering different perspectives, nobody would even really care about what Kenna Barris is doing. But unfortunately, we're in a position that we only like you're being given one and you're like, be happy with it. But then we're like, no, we've got Twitter. We've got Instagram, so we've got YouTube. We're going to comment on this and we're going to be like, "Mm, we're not really feeling this. In conclusion, Black AF just needed to retitle once again. It seems like maybe the third time would have been the charm. So something like hashtag rich as fuck or hashtag Kenya Barris Black AF. It would speak more to his experience and not attach the experience of a whole race to one person. The problem was and will remain using titles that promise one thing 
and don't deliver. It's like girlfriends having no girlfriends, girls trip with no girls or trip, American Next Top Model with no America or any top models. It's important to have representation of all shades. Kenya Barris might not be the one to deliver on this, but with great power comes great responsibility. Circling back to the self-awareness that's presented within the show, just being able to acknowledge, being able to offer a little bit more balance would work to suffice more than anything. And that's not to take away from someone creatively, but I feel that there's also a duty when you are presenting things, when you are doing things, if things need to be adjusted in order to be able to have a wider perspective of what's going on, I feel that there's nothing wrong with being able to employ that. And that's why you have writer's room. And that's why the more diverse your writing room is, the more that you can be able to need in a better perspective and present something that's enjoyable overall and that's more reflective of society. For me, I do believe that we do have a duty of being able to do that. I'm curious to see if a second season of the show will come about and if so, based on the characters alone, there's room to keep the stories going. There's room to keep the stories going and to keep on exploring with these characters but I feel that there has to be caution that's exercised when race is being used to either work one way or another. I do feel that there's a core audience that's been completely lost and that is not going to be coming back purely because the show seems to be targeting the white middle class or upper class market more than anything. We are not the target audience. Simply black audiences, black people are not the core target audience of this show. As an overall show, it's not badly executed, but the fact that Kenya Barris has made a show centered around race, it then fully opens up all the criticism that he's been getting, all the backlash, everything I feel offers a discussion point. And I know, I doubt, I highly doubt that when he made the show, he was like, you know what? I just really want to make a show that's going to get black people talking on Twitter and that's going to get them pissed off. I doubt that that was the driving force from the beginning, but he's been able to benefit from that negative backlash. As they do say, good or bad publicity is publicity at the end of the day. So it's drawn people at least to be curious and check out the season. It's brought about different thoughts, school of thoughts in it. And I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about it. If you've watched it, if you have not, let me know what you think. Let me know what you think. It's taken me some time just to be able to get my thoughts around everything and hopefully I was able to articulate them as best as I can. I really want to hear back from you guys when it comes to representation on screen and what your thoughts about it when it comes to programming that really puts race at the forefront in order to be able to package and sell it. For now, until next time, I'm Natumi and this is Mariva Podcast.